Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Inside Asia podcast from the Center for Asian Democracy at the University of Louisville. This is Dave Buckley, CAD's director, and Paul Weber, endowed chair of politics, science, and religion here in the political science department at UofL. Thanks to the great leadership of our colleague, Tori Dahl, CAD's podcast channel is, of course, available. Um, subscribe through Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search Center for Asian Democracy. Subscribe, review, and stay up to date on all of our future content. We are joined today by Dr. Levy McLaughlin for a discussion on religion and Japanese politics. Religion is probably not the first thing uh, that Westerners think about in terms of influences on Japan's democracy. I know that even as somebody who studies religion and democracy, it's not the first thing that comes to my mind. But that's what makes Levy's research so interesting. Uh, Levy McLaughlin is associate professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at NC State University. He received his PhD from Princeton after previous studies at the University of Tokyo. Um, he has published widely uh, in English and Japanese in various leading journals of the field. Um, he's co-author and co-editor um, of Kometo, Politics and Religion in Japan, um, and uh, an author of the book Sokogakai, Human Revolution, The Rise of a Mimetic Nation in Modern Japan uh, from the University of Hawaii Press in 2019. Levy's research primarily focuses on religion in modern and contemporary Japan. Um, and considers how that very category of religion takes shape in the context of politics, education, and related spheres. He spent a lot of time, as you'll hear a little bit about in our uh, conversation, um, as the first non-member, non-Japanese researcher uh, immersed for years as a participant observer in the Sokogakai movement, a highly influential lay Buddhist organization that's also tied to party politics in the country, which you'll hear about. Um, he's published extensively on that research and, and more recently um, on, uh, on broader projects related to how religious, dim religious dimensions of Japanese politics um, impact areas as diverse um, as uh, Shinto organizations, ethics training groups, corporations, and other forms of ideologically motivated activism. Um, our conversation really starts on July 8th, 2022, um, with an event that got plenty of international press, um, the assassination of Shinzo Abe, um, arguably uh, Japan's most important post-war democratic politician. Um, it's probably unsurprising that the Abe murder was uh, the start of a political earthquake in Japan. He was still probably the country's most important political figure. Um, but what's less appreciated is how much of that political reckoning has centered on the role of religion in the country, and in particular in the motivations of the murderer that day. Um, as you'll hear from Levy, the fallout has uh, put political parties on the defensive and involved potential legal steps uh, against controversial, controversial religious movement uh, in the country. There's plenty to talk about. Uh, so without more from me, let's turn to our conversation with Professor Levy McLaughlin. Well, Professor Levy McLaughlin, thanks so much for joining us this morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, we're going to talk about an event that was very unusual in Japanese politics. It attracted international headlines about a year ago, the, the uh, assassination of um, Shinzo Abe. Um, it attracted international headlines because it was a sensational event in, in many ways, uh, very unusual, uh, particularly in Japanese politics. Um, can you maybe get our listeners started with just a brief refresher on what happened that day? Certainly. Yeah, let's return to the precipitating event to start off. Um, so let's cast our minds back to uh, July 8th of 2022. This is two days before 
an election in Japan uh, for the uh, the House of Councilors, the upper house. It's the one of the two houses in Japan's bicameral le legislature. We're on the streets of the city of Nara, historical capital in the western part of Japan. And on the street is Abe Shinzo. He's the uh, for, now former prime minister of Japan. He was the longest serving prime minister in Japanese history. And even though <clears throat> he's former prime minister, he's still the most powerful politician in the country. There he is uh, giving a campaign speech on behalf of, of a fellow member of his party, the Liberal Democratic Party. This is the majority party in Japan. They've dominated Japanese politics since 1955. And then shortly before noon, as he's giving this speech on the street, he is shot from behind by with a makeshift uh, projectile weapon constructed by the gunman Yamagami Tetsuya, who is a, at this point a 41-year-old disaffected person who has targeted Abe as it transpires because of his grudge against the a religious organization, uh, which used to be called the Unification Church, now goes under the title the Family Federation for World Peace and Unification. And so it was fascinating, horrific and fascinating to watch the initial uh, fallout from this really shocking event. It's worth pointing out that, you know, Japan is, uh, you know, famously a safe country in the sense of having a very low levels of gun violence. In 2021, there was one gun death in Japan, um, whereas there are, I think, close to 44,000 gun deaths that year in the United States. Um, that said, though, there is actually a history of political violence, uh, largely along the lines of sword and knife attacks, mostly by right-wing organizations against seated politicians, not always resulting in homicides. But in any event, this was a massively surprising uh, occurrence. The mainstream media, um, I was told later by reporters for mainstream outlets that they were encouraged to not push the fact that the motivation for Yamagami was religious in nature. And you could actually watch that play out. So the initial reports were saying things like the gunman held a grudge against a specific religious organization, which is a very loaded term. And then actually you could watch it uh, shift on Twitter uh, for, to a specific organization that dropped religion from the descriptor. Um, and I was told by the reporters that uh, should they up, you know, sort of uh, emphasize the religion nature of it, they risked uh, their access to politicians to for press conferences, especially in the lead up to the election. So what happened was that the Yamagami was uh, held a grudge against Abe because Abe had longstanding ties with this highly controversial organization to which his family had belonged and specifically his mother, Yamagami's mother had given very large amounts of money as donations to the group to the extent that it bankrupted his family. And even after the family declared bankruptcy in 2002, his mom kept giving money to the organization and Yamagami thereafter lived for two decades, seething with uh, resentment uh, and blamed uh, the course of his rather tragic life on, on the church, unable to target the church leadership because of COVID era restrictions and because of frankly, better security surrounding the church leadership than, those, than what that which surrounded the former prime minister of Japan. Uh, he ended up targeting Abe and carried out what some people are calling the most successful 
assassination in recent memory. So can you spin that out a little bit more for us? So the, the story of kind of personal grievance tied to family financial loss um, has a sort of line through it that makes sense. Um, uh, but you you point out that the target of the violence wasn't obviously someone within the religious church. It was the very, very prominent, the most prominent uh, politician in, in Japan. Why did it make sense in, insofar as there was a thought process here to take out that frustration on Japan's most important post-war politician? Right. Well, this wasn't on anyone's radar. But then upon reflection, there are these ties that, that emerged uh, in the immediate aftermath of the assassination that revealed that yeah, indeed that there were I mean, there were sort of justifications that Yamagami, Yamagami could have turned to for his uh, resentment. So Abe uh, had, I was actually part of a lineage within his family of longstanding ties to this highly controversial organization, which is worth describing in some, in a little bit at least. So the Unification Church uh, gained uh, high levels of notoriety uh, all across the world, really, actually. It's you know known pejoratively in the United States as the Moonies. And in fact, the uh, use of the word cult uh, to describe uh, religious organizations that gain a nefarious reputation was initially applied to the, to the Unification Church. They were one of the first sort of like test subjects for the use of that negative uh, term. Um, and Japan has been a particular focus for this organization. It's founded in, in, uh, in Korea in 1954, begins uh, proselytizing in Japan in 1959. It's a product of the uh, uh, the imperial Japanese experience, um, and so the founder Samyang Moon, who is uh, regarded as a messiah by the by its followers, to, uh, regards um, starts preaching about Japan being an Eve nation uh, to compared to Korea as the Adam nation, and essentially owing an indemnity to Korea. Uh, uh, by virtue of Japan's uh, poor treatment of Korea during its imperial years, during the you know from 1905 to 1945, the years in which uh, Moon uh, was raised within war-torn era of Korea, um, so the Japanese uh, membership is targeted f uh, excessively for um, monetary and human resources. So Japanese members are exploited to a very large extent uh, and along the lines of Yamagami's mother. In her case, she gave the equivalent of something like three quarters of a million U.S. dollars to the church over the course of her, of her donations. Um, and that turned out to be not actually all that unusual. There's also a, a practice within the church of um, uh, marriages. This is what the, the Unification Church becomes famous for: these mass weddings um, that are uh, where in in which pairs who are matched up by the holy couple uh, Samuel Moon and his his uh, his his wife Hakta Han Moon, who's now the leader of the church, uh, pair up people who've never met before in in these holy uh, matrimony blessings and. Um, so the, this kind of practice, uh, this exploitation of humans, uh, this you know, which are in, in the measure, the marriages and uh, adoption of children practices that are carried out by the church are regarded by critics as forms of human trafficking. Um, it's targeted for decades by uh, uh, disgruntled former members and the families of members uh, who sue the church for uh, to return resources. Most notably is an organization called the Japan's National Network for the Lawyers Against Spiritual Sales, who regard the church as one of the most problematic, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, cr cr criminals in this regard, you know, carrying out this this uh, practice of demanding really excessive to, uh, monetary donations in exchange for uh, release from uh, the agonies of spiritual tortures. Um, so this this uh, is uh, you know a, a group that's known for this. And in meanwhile, in the meantime, this group also uh, cultivates really strong political ties. And so those ties go way back. They go back to the basically the early days of the church in Japan. Um, Abe is part of a political dynasty. His grandfather, Kishi Nobusuke, was a prime minister during the wartime years and then again prime minister after, after World War II. Um, he and Samyeon Lun become quite close. And there's all kinds of documentation about ways that... Um, Kishi uh, supported the church, especially in its really aggressive anti-communist initiatives. They shared this as, you know, as a conservative politician, Kishi shared this objective. The church, once it receives uh, registration as a religious juridical person in 1964, establishes its headquarters right next to the Kishi family compound in Tokyo, in Shibuya. It's a very you know, lively part of central Tokyo. Um, and thereafter, um, not only the uh, the Kishi and then the Abe family, but many other politicians within the LDP and other other politicians as well receive support of various kinds from the Unification Church, and that runs the gamut from um, getting uh, uh, secretaries and others to work uh, uh, without salary for electoral campaigns or for the offices of of these organizations to mobilization of votes and all kinds of other forms of support. Those revelations pour forth in the uh, aftermath of Abe's murder. And um, and so actually what transpires is that um, as opposed to uh, outrage against Yamagami for killing a, you know, a very prominent politician, he becomes something of a folk hero, uh, kind of uh, an underdog who uh, is, re is regarded as being sort of this righteous, oppressed person who carry, you know, was justified in uh, exercising his, his uh, resentment against um, a corrupt political establishment through violence. Yeah, I mean, you argued that there's um, in, in this just great article that listeners should check out in, in current history on the uh, on these events um, that there's a kind of moral panic going on in Japanese society between sort of conceptions of um, I don't know if these are exactly your words, but kind of appropriate local religious traditions or spiritual traditions and sort of dangerous cults and um and sort of outsiders i mean is it as simple as that is this just sort of seen as an outsider movement that is kind of not legitimate and and sort of hoarding privileges to itself in sort of duplicitous ways or how does the good religion bad cult uh distinction get constructed Okay, let's back up a little bit. So, you know, one of the sort of uh, standard lines about Japan is that this, it's a country where religion isn't that important, right? And so, and sure enough, if you look at um, surveys that are undertaken, you know, especially global surveys about uh, levels of what's often termed religiosity, right? Japan routinely ranks as one of the lowest in the world. Um, so in response to questions like, do you have religious faith? Which I would I would say is a fairly loaded question to ask anywhere. Um, Japan the, the the typical response rate in the affirmative in Japan is hovers around twenty percent. 
So one in five people are willing to say, yes, I am, however this is conceived, I am religious, right? And so that, that you know, that's strikingly low. And so it's striking then to look at, say, uh, electoral politics in Japan to realize that actually there are quite a few religious organizations that are heavily involved with politics. And also just more generally, if you look at Japan, um, there are something in the neighborhood of 180,000 religious groups that are registered as religious critical persons. And if you change the nature of the questions you ask from, do you have faith, which I would argue is a kind of, uh, a, a, a kind of questioning that is rooted in a, in a presumption about what counts as religion that tends to privilege a, a fairly Protestant Christian set of assumptions of interiorized faith, individual choice, uh, religion versus non-religion, and instead ask questions like, what do you do? Um, do you take part in ritual activities? Do you think uh, there is a spirit world that exists? Is it important? Is it relevant? Once those questions start being asked, you know, the, the the picture shifts a bit. But by and large, in Japan, there's a great deal of reticence on the part of most people to uh, self-identify as religious. And there's a overlapping historical reasons for this. Some of them are go back to the um, the the problematic or the fraught uh, importation of the category religion to Japan when it was in the throes of transforming into a modern imperialist nation state and all of a sudden required this new umbrella category to be applied to traditions that, you know, for many hundreds of years prior to this had never been labeled religions. They'd been, you know, following the path of the Buddha, following the path of the kami or the deities of the organization that comes to be called Shinto or the tradition that comes to be called Shinto. And then there was this rise in uh, newly founded organizations that are often sort of treated within Japan as these uh, sinister internal others that can be used as convenient foils against which to define the orthodoxy of more traditional practices. So you've got a lot of all that going on. And what you really have also on top of all of that is more recent history with violent organizations, most specifically Om Shindikyo, the apocalyptic group that released sarin gas in the Tokyo subways in March 1995. And that had left such a massive impact in Japan that the cognitive link now between saying, yes, I'm religious, is with that form of scary marginality. You know, the Unification Church, uh, you know, inspired or the, the assassination here of, of Abe that seems to, you know, that's linked to a grudge against a group that's also, you know, labeled a cult in the same way that Ohm has been labeled a cult, uh, brings all of that back. And so what happened in the uh, weeks following the murder of Abe was Japan's largest ever uh, pub, uh, social media event. So Matthew Brummer, who's a scholar, at, uh, at, at, um, uh, in Tokyo, who's now actually a visiting scholar at Harvard this year, put together this amazing um, collation of these statistics. Conservatively, something like 350 million tweets were released in, uh, in the three months following the Abe murder uh, on this event. Um, and all of them were basically expressions of outrage. Curiously absent from that were expressions of sadness about Abe's murder. There wasn't a whole lot of discussion of mental health, which you might think would be a, pri a pretty important priority for someone who 
uh, you know, builds a homemade weapon in his one-room apartment and decides to murder Japan's most prominent politician. But instead, it's uh, this moral outrage about uh, the connection between politicians and this nefarious organization. And it was a really tenacious issue uh, that uh, that has really um, affected Japanese politics in fairly profound ways up to, frankly, this week at the time of recording. Yeah, and so, so one of the reasons that we're having this conversation right now um, is because um, in recent weeks, Japan has been considering um, different forms of legal restrictions related to what we're talking about here, uh, related to religion's role in the assassination and the unification church. Um, again, this might come as a surprise to some of our listeners when we think about regulation of religion or uh, the, the status of religious groups as nonprofits or, or, or and potentially losing that status. Um, uh, Japan is probably not the first country that comes to mind where, when we think of that dynamic, but it's going on right now. So could you first of all just sort of describe what's going on right now and then give us a little context for, um, uh, for why politicians have been going down that road? Sure. Okay. So let's a little bit of legal context for this. So Japan, like many other uh, democracies, is a place where religions register as corporations. Um, and they do this largely for very beneficial tax reasons. Um, the, in exchange for operating as uh, organizations for public benefit, which is also the case, for example, in the United States, um, they receive very generous tax relief. They don't pay tax on any uh, revenue derived from religious uh, activities. They also don't have to pay, for example, property tax on on properties that uh, you know that are places where religious activities take place. And there's a few other benefits like this. And you know, for the vast majority of these organizations, this is a life or death matter for them. Um, they would cease to exist because they simply cannot generate revenue uh, that that would be sufficient to you know sustain them if they were taxed uh, along the lines of an, any other kind of group. There's a, a law that was put in place in 1951 in Japan, the Religious Juridical Persons Law, that's been revised, uh, you know, is pretty significantly since then, most significantly in 1996 after the OMA tax. And just as of in the time of recording, so we're, we're speaking now on Thursday, the 16th of November, two days ago in Japan, um, uh, the, the, the National Diet uh, the the ruling coalition of the National Diet, which comprises the Liberal Democratic Party and its junior partner, Kometo, which is a party founded by the, again, somewhat uh, uh, notorious uh, new religious movement, Soka Gakkai, have put jointly put in a, a, a you know a, a, a bid for new legislation that will again revise the religious juridical persons law to ensure that groups that that are dissolved uh, can't then abscond with all of their assets. And that's what's at stake right now. So uh, I mentioned earlier, there are 180,000 or so religions in Japan. A grand total of three have ever been dissolved uh, in, in the post four years. There are measures in that law that allow for the investigation and dissolution of groups that no longer can be defended as being beneficial to public to the pub, to public life, right? Um, the two of those, the two most prominent cases are are groups that were convicted of felonies in Om Shinrikyo, you know, committed mass murder. That's a felony. 
Um, and there was another group called Nyokakuji Group, uh, which is a temple-based Buddhist organization that was convicted of fraud. And so the, that's that's the precedent that has served uh, lawmakers up to this point. Um, in October of last year, following great public outrage about the Unification Church, driven largely by revelations about the uh, LDP's connection to the organization, Prime Minister Kishida decided, uh, just declared that civil law violations would be sufficient for uh, legal dissolution of a religion. That might sound like a nitpicky legal uh, you know, concern, but uh, for a religious organization, this raises all kinds of serious uh, existential problems. What, what then is the threshold for a government dissolving you as a group, right? This leads to all kinds of uh, pretty significant constitutional issues. Japan is a place where uh, there are, it's a, the Japanese constitution, the 1947 constitution is distinctive in many ways. And one of them is that it has multiple uh, 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 articles that uh, separate religion from government, but it also guarantees freedom of religion. And so these debates are now uh, coming to the fore. Um, in, in the fall of last year, uh, the Japanese government sanctioned an investigation of the Unification Church that was largely undertaken uh, under the auspices of the Agency for Cultural Affairs. And this is a committee of people made up of academics, bureaucrats, lawyers, and others who were acting on uh, suspicions about the church's longstanding uh, exploitation of members and others, and also responding to searing testimonials gathered by, uh, from, of ex-members or former members, a constituency called the, in Japanese, the Shukyo Nise, or the second generation religious. They've become a really prominent constituency since the Abe assassination, very public, uh, kind of um, standing in as a critique of religion as a form of child abuse in many cases. So acting on that, this this uh, committee and uh, you know, carried out this invest pretty you know uh, detailed investigation of the church, uh, came to the conclusion that the church did not sufficiently answer a significant percentage of the many hundreds of questions that were directed at it. And in uh, October this past October, the uh, Japanese government uh, made a request to the, the Tokyo District Court to uh, over, to look into the possibility of carrying out the legal dissolution of the church. And so since then, there have been basically there's a lot of, you know, defenses mounted by the Unification Church itself saying that this is a violation of religious freedom. Um, we did, in fact, you know, do our best to answer these uh, these questions that were put to us. The main uh, issue at stake right now is the assets. What's going to happen? So basically, there's an there's an effort to secure the what's understood to be many millions of dollars worth of assets that the church maintains to in order to distribute that to its uh, you know the victims essentially of its exploitative practices. And there's concern that the church will and uh, try to move those uh, assets overseas so as not to have them claimed by the Japanese government. That's what's at stake right now. So as you can see, there's all kinds of um, uh, all kinds of all corners of law are being involved here. So consumer affairs, uh, religious freedom, 
and various other aspects related to the religious juridical person's law. Yeah, no, it's just super fascinating. I mean, so you talked about how you know the LDP is kind of at the center of of this as Japan's dominant post-war party and including these sort of recent moves. I mean, so if I'm understanding correctly, on the one hand, a number of LDP politicians would have been involved in these kinds of relationships with individuals within the Unification Church, which originally um, kind of generated the the anger that, that got the assassin uh, targeting uh, Abe. Uh, but also now they're leading some of this charge to um, to to look into the potential for the legal dissolution. Um, is um, is there a sense that this kind of creates the opportunity that some of those same politicians could be embarrassed by what comes out? I mean, is there a prospect that uh, that oh. some chickens might come <laughs> might come home to roost during this process? The chickens are comfortably roosting. At this point. <laughs> I think that's that can be said. Yeah, uh, the Kishida cabinet has been really heavily embarrassed by the uh, the, the fallout. Um, and so the, he, there have been a various attempts on the part of the Kishida government to make amends. And so uh, the assassination happened in early July of last year. In uh, August, uh, the Kishida cabinet was reshuffled. He reshuffled his cabinet in his attempt to sort of basically get rid of cabinet ministers who were um, who had most prominent ties to the Unification Church. But even after that, um, there were still cabinet ministers who had ties to the church. And that was pointed out immediately by a press that was really hungry for that kind of revelation. I mean, it reached the point where even the smallest uh, news item about, you know, looking into the past of a, an elected official, say they had a photo op or something with uh, the Unification Church that warranted its own story that was liable to be you know, retweeted many hundreds of times, viewed viewed by many thousands of people. And so the, the Kishida government's uh, pop, you know, uh, approval rating started to really plummet. And uh, and so that that's 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 what happened. And so that was actually what inspired the uh, what, what seems to have driven a lot of the the measures taken by Kishida, including the decision to uh, basically put pressure on those involved with the investigation to vote unanimously in favor with going ahead with the dissolution order, even though it seems to be um, potentially legally problematic, potentially to raise all kinds of constitutional constitutional issues and also to um uh, move into unprecedented legal territory uh and that will in ways that may end up coming back to uh haunt those involved we'll have to see how it plays out in the courts chances are this will take quite a long time to re resolve in the courts uh almost certainly you know it will certainly be challenged by the church itself whether it moves from the Tokyo district court to the supreme court we'll, you know we'll have to see how that plays out um, but in the meantime, the, yeah, the Kishida government's uh, popularity kept plummeting as of, I think it was today I saw its rate, it's, the popularity or so the approval rating is now just over 21%. Uh, the disapproval rating is in the mid 50s. And so this Somebody is- Somebody tell the Biden administration they won't feel so bad. This is it, you know, <laughs> it's all relative, <laughs> but it is indicative. And then uh, frankly, the, the major reasons for that don't have anything to do with the unification church, but, but it was clear that um, Kishida was looking for a boost. Uh, by going ahead with a dissolution order, by looking strong in the face of this nefarious organization, making amends for the longstanding ties. On that, though, I think it's worth pointing something out. So there's absolutely nothing unusual about a religious organization and a, pol and a politician having a relationship. You know, in spite of the uh, 
uh, you know, the multiple clauses in the Constitution guaranteeing a separation of religion and government, there's also freedom of expression, freedom of association, and freedom of religion guaranteed by the same document. And so, and if you're a politician, you constantly receive support from interest groups of all kinds, right? This is so... Uh, the religions are not unusual in this regard, in the same way that, you know, a politician would seek uh, support from a labor union, uh, from a business, uh, and, you know, a group, uh, any kind of thing like that. And so, um, so this is a longstanding practice. And of course, it's quid pro quo um, in exchange for offering pretty substantial, in some cases, very substantial electoral support for, for politicians. Um, they these groups can enjoy certain protections, and that's that's been the the source of a lot of the critique. Actually, is that the Unification Church, in spite of carrying out really obviously exploitative practices, has been insulated from um, persecution, legal persecution, has been insulated from uh, political attention. Um, uh, for for generations. Yeah, and that's useful to hear a little bit about. I mean, you, um, so, you know, our kind of American listeners or Western listeners probably associate religious interest groups or religious influence in politics with kind of socially conservative policy goals. What do they want? They want socially conservative policy goals, and that's why they do this kind of activity, right? Um, it sounds to me like you're mostly describing a little bit of a different model, actually. This isn't so much about advocating for policy interpretation or executive orders that sort of... Per are, are a, a means to, to ideological ends, more about institutional preservation and, and protection or no? Well, actually it's both. And so okay. let, let's let's look at the, the ruling coalition in Japan. So it's made up of two parties. You have the LDP, the majority party, which is very, it's a conservative um, bastion. Um, and and then you have the junior party, which is Kolmeito, the, uh, sometimes glossed as the clean government party uh, founded by a lay Buddhist organization called Sokagakkai. And so very obviously these are, you know, <laughs> on that side, you have very obvious religious investment, right? Or the investment by uh, religiously uh, motivated actors. Um, the LDP uh, is not famous for being religiously connected. Nonetheless, uh, most some of its most powerful supporters belong to various lobby organizations that include uh, Shinto groups, that include um, various forms of ethical training organizations that in some cases don't incorporate as religions, but otherwise uh, pr you know, promote ideals that are shared by religious organizations and numerous others. Um, and, and on both sides, you have policy orientations and policy proposals that are that are ad, you know that are advanced by their supporters and advanced by the elected officials to who belong to them. They are uh, they they run a wide spectrum. So, uh, for example, Kolmeito Sokagaka is famous for its largely socially progressive um, policy platform. It's famous. Uh, it's if you look at the uh, the manifestos that it advances in, in you know before major elections, the majority of those manifestos concern themselves with uh, policies that will be greeted with uh, the approbation of homemakers. Uh, their their most powerful vote gathering engine is the women's division of Sokagaka, and so it's things like um, making education affordable for children, um, providing allowances uh, for mothers of young children, uh, making sure that um, consumption tax rates on on, ba on basic staples for the household are, are kept to a minimum. 
you know, these don't seem like radically right-wing uh, proposals, right? They're fairly, uh, fairly progressive. At the same time, Cometo has become famous in recent decades for being on board with, um, you know, what would have to be called fairly hawkish security uh, uh, proposals that are advanced by the LDP as part of its own quid pro quo within the coalition. In the meantime, the, the Unification Church, which has also been a longstanding, obviously a longstanding supporter of the LDP, has has cooperated with other organizations for highly conservative uh, platforms, and many of these have manifested along the lines of being uh, oppositions to, uh, for example, uh, same-sex marriage, oppositions to uh, current changes for current proposed changes, for example, in laws about. Uh, uh, requirements for um, changing one's sex legally for transgender for tra transgender folks, um, being uh, really uh, uh, advancing uh, local level ordinances and um, subnational legislation that fights against uh, basically feminist or even just more sort of, uh, middle of the road gender equality recognitions that kind of thing so yeah in fact there is there is quite a uh, a lot of investment in in policy and policy making but it's really uh widespread like across the end of spectrum yeah that's super interesting so, so your own work um has especially focused on soko gakai and and um its social role and, and political mobilization i mean part of the story that that we're seeing play out here is potential uh, regulatory steps taken against a relatively small religious community, relatively new religious community in the country. Had there been responses or concerns from other smaller players like Sokogakai or others who have maybe said, okay, this time it's the Unification Church, but are we worried about the way that these interpretations could play out in the future? Those uh, concerns are certainly being expressed. Um, so Sokogakai and Kometo are treading a pretty fine line here. Um, as, as part of the coalition, you know, they feel compelled to, to respond to the widespread outrage of, you know, expressed by people in Japan about the Unification Church and its deep involvement uh, with government and a need to uh, address the, 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 you know, the, the needs of uh, those who were victimized by the organization is, is how it's been viewed. So, but on the other hand, they're keenly aware of the precedent that this that this dissolution of the Unification Church based on civic law violations, what what that would mean for for their support organization Sokagakai, they're keenly aware of this because there is a you know a li living memory of how this has played out in the not so distant past. Um, following the attacks on the subways uh, by Om Shindikyo and the revelations about its other homicides there was a great deal of uh political effort to um to create new laws uh, these became known as the ohm laws and also to uh, to uh, revise the religious juridical persons law but what was very clear was that uh those new new legislative efforts weren't really aimed at om shindikyo they were aimed at sokagakai Sokogakai is Japan's largest modern religion. Uh, it gained, uh, it became basically the 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 one of the most 
bitter foes of the LDP up to this point. Um, it was certainly uh, seen as a uh, uh, as an enemy by conservatives, uh, and not just conservatives, by its large number of political and religious rivals in Japan. And so what transpired after uh, the Ohm attacks was the um, coming together of an organization that came, came to be called the April Society. And this was basically a who's who of everyone who hated Soko Gaka and Kometo. And they they put, they were, they were strong advocates of these, this new, new legislation, attempts to subpoena uh, the leader of Soko Gakkai, the honorary president Ikeda Daisaku, have him testify at the upper house, uh, efforts that were testifying for, before the diet. And then that, that was blocked in the upper house by, um, uh, politicians who were affiliated with Kometo. And so this was a very frothy time in that regard. And so uh, one of the ironies of that uh, tumultuous era is that uh, Kometo ended up coming into coalition with the LDP, their long, long-standing uh, political enemy, and they've been in coalition since 1999. And so... Uh, now they're in coalition with this you know, organization that's now, you know, making strident efforts to dissolve another religion. There, there's definitely cause for concern. And the, the uh, not just Sokogakai, but frankly, any uh, minoritized group or really potentially any other religious uh, actor runs the risk of um, falling afoul of a new uh, political interpretation of these laws and so we'll have to see how this ends up playing out um this this could be quite consequential so i know that you are uh, shortly on your way to japan to sort of look into uh to how some of these dynamics are are developing i know sometimes it's hard to know before we get into the field but what are you hoping to find as a researcher um uh what needs to be paid attention to that maybe still isn't getting the attention in kind of press salads that uh, that, that we need to understand about the future of this case yeah, so I mean, one of my guiding questions always is, what's at stake, and for whom, you know, who's being affected by it? And so, in this on this particular trip, I'm hoping to speak with elected officials about how they've been involved with these, you know, uh, uh, various uh, negotiations regarding uh, the new, new, new proposed new laws uh, focused on the church. But per perhaps more importantly than that, I'm actually once again hoping to meet up with members of the Unification Church. So absent from almost all of the coverage has been attention to uh, what you might call sort of ordinary members, people for who are uh, on the ground carrying out their their everyday practices. Um, and so for them, th this this much of the the uh, the the tumult that has that has uh, unfolded has been uh, you know terrifying. Actually, they are already marginalized people. Um, the vast majority of what you call the average member of the Unification Church in Japan is liable to be uh, a woman, probably elderly. This is someone who's already you know not a power holder in in a society that's you know very sexist, very uh, very much stratified along socioeconomic lines. And now you know re regards this faith as an anathema. And so what does it mean for these folks? How are how are they surviving? How are they thinking about what's going to happen to them? One of the ironies that I think deserves attention is that there's a kind of a triumphal narrative around the uh, legal dissolution of the church. And therefore, you know, if we can just get the law right, we can uh, get rid of this nefarious organization. 
But in fact, you know, the, for those for whom uh, dedication to this faith is uh, makes up who they are, they're going to be the ones shouldering shouldering the burden. The in this case, the the financial burden of you know, maintaining an organization that will no longer be protected from taxation and other things like that. So. I think it might end up having quite a deleterious effect on people who, you know, are already very victimized and uh, but don't regard themselves as victims of the church. Rather, they regard themselves as victims of a government and society that is treating them poorly. So there's a lot of tensions there that I think deserve a little, uh, empathetic attention. Yeah, well, thanks so much for sharing your attention with us, um, Levy. This is just a, a great um, uh, conversation today and a, a case where a lot of us who study democracy in Asia probably don't think of religion as being high on the political agenda, um, but uh, but one where these dynamics uh, are, are playing a really important role in, in partisan politics and in court cases related to rights in the region. So thanks so much. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, and to our listeners, uh, we've been glad to be with you this semester. Uh, keep an eye uh, on the pod feeds for uh, another episode coming up in coming weeks as we wind down the 2023 uh, year. Um, and of course, in 2024, we'll have uh, both in-person and uh, online events that we'll be announcing through the Center for Asian Democracies, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram accounts. Uh, you can subscribe to this Inside Asia podcast on services like Apple Podcasts and Spotify, uh, and uh, and you'll hear there as well about future episodes uh, in coming weeks. Be well. Mm -hmm.